Today, we'll add to this series a message about what it means to be single. Here's what 754,000 New Brunswicker, New, 75,000 adult New Brunswickers reported last year to Statistics Canada on their tax forms. 50% self-identified as married or living common law, that is, cohabitating. While the other 50% self-identified as either widowed, separated, divorced, or single. True story. 327,000 New Brunswickers. 50% of our province's population self-identified in this way. And so perhaps it merits the question... As we consider a biblical understanding and definition of family, what is your theology of singleness? What is your theology of singleness? Have you ever thought of that before? Now, I'm assuming as I prompt that question to you this morning that you are tempted to do one of two things. If you're single here this morning, you may be saying, Tapper, really no offense, but... What do you know about being single, right? Married at 23, a house full of children. What do you know about not being married? Or single after a divorce? Or widowed? Or being a single parent? What's your experience living as a member of a long-distance family and being separated by a spouse because of employment or military service? What do you know about that, Mike? Mike, are you a single adult with special needs? No. No, I'm, I'm none of those things. That's not my experience. And so if you're single here this morning, you may be tempted to simply tune out. But there's another demographic here this morning that might be temp- tempted to, to just simply tune out as well. And you're married. And you're breathing deeply this morning and you're saying, Ah! Finally, a message that does not pertain to me, (laughs) right? Twitter time, or or better yet, it's it's time for me to, to look around at all those poor, lonely, single people this morning. Oh, it must be terrible. God bless them. I'm glad I'm not one of them. So if you're married this morning, you may be tempted to to tune me out as well. So I guess middle school teenagers, that means it's just you and me here this morning, huh? (laughs) Uh, Well, whether you're married this morning or you're not married this morning, young or not so young, my hope is that you'll not tune out and, in fact, challenge yourself to consider, catch this, how singleness is actually part of God's plan. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 17 to 35. Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. 
Was a man uncircumcised when he was called, he should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you, although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who was free when called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. Brothers and sisters, each person as responsible to God should remain in the situation that they were in when God called them. Now about virgins. I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. Oh, man, that's great. Oh, boy, way to be Paul. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them, for this world in its present form is passing away. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. Let's stop there, shall we? If we've been following along there, I'd imagine that there's probably enough to rattle just about anyone's cage here this morning. I mean, think about it as we've just listened along and read along there. We've got unmarried and married, and we've got virginity and and circumcision and, and widowhood and Let's throw in slavery into there. And earlier in the chapter, Paul is tackling divorce and sexual intimacy. I mean, wow. (laughs) Really, just about every wedge issue that you could possibly think of on the topic of family, here it is in this chapter. And so undeniably, there's lots there in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. But hold on. Just before we pass premature judgment on the passage, let's hold on. You see, I'd like us to to hold what we just read, this passage that we just read, in tension and consider it for a few moments within the broader narrative of Scripture. Can we do that this morning? Can we do that? Let's take a little bit of a spin then through the scriptural racetrack And so fasten your seatbelts. I hope that you brought your Bibles. Put your thinking helmet on and let's go for a ride. In the beginning, in the beginning, way, way back in Genesis, 
in God's initial created order and before sin entered into the picture, God emphasized physical procreation as the means of building his people. And so in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 28, God created man and woman in his own image, and then God blessed them and said to them, be what? And awesome, be fruitful and increase, multiply, fill the earth. Well, Moncton Wesleyan, you know how that works. You guys are well-versed in this. You understand Genesis chapter 2 says, a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and the two will become one, one flesh, one flesh. And so that's the answer. Physical procreation. This is the picture of God's plan. And if you read the Old Testament, you see that being married and and having children was very, very important. You see, names and inheritance was important. Identity within God's family was essential. And so it is in Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. God blesses Abraham. And God says to Abraham, Abraham... I will make you into a great nation. All people of earth will be blessed through you. How does that happen? Well, we know that it happens through Abraham's children, through his physical descendants. And that same promise to Abraham, sure enough, it's extended to his offspring, to Isaac And to Jacob, to Isaac in Genesis chapter 26, verse 4, God says, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and will give them all these lands. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. A few chapters later to Jacob in Genesis chapter 28, verse 14, God says to Jacob, Jacob, your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. See, God says to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, I'm going to bless you. And the blessing is going to come through your physical descendants. And so physical offspring in God's covenant to Israel was crucial. It was crucial. And a person's ability or inability to carry on their name was decisive. And this explains, this explains why King Saul is, is literally clinging to David in 1 Samuel chapter 24 when he senses that his kingly control is is slipping through his fingers. And Saul begs, and Saul pleads with David, David, swear to me by the Lord that you'll not kill off my descendants or wipe out my name from my family's, uh, from my father's family. Descendancy preserved the covenant. Preserved the covenant. And that's why there was an elaborate leveret marriage law concerning the, the obligations of a man 
to marry his deceased brother's wife. Men, imagine it. Marrying your sister-in-law by obligation so that the name of the deceased brother wouldn't be lost. Why? Because descendants preserved the covenant. Preserved the covenant. Think about the story of Boaz agreeing to, to marry Ruth as her kinsman redeemer. Boaz marries Ruth to preserve the name of Ruth, Ruth's father-in-law, Elimelech, and her widow, Malin. And so, on the day of their marriage, Boaz stands up in front of the elders and the witnesses in Ruth chapter 4, verse 5, and says, Today, I marry Ruth. So her deceased spouse's name will, disappear, will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Well, what does all this mean? The point to be made here from these Old Testament examples that we're touching on here this morning is that singleness and barrenness was not desirable in the Old Covenant. Why? Because your name would be blotted out of Israel if you were unmarried and you had no children. And so getting married, physically procreating and passing along your inheritance, that was a mandate. And singleness and barrenness was viewed as a curse. But then I want us to look at something. Something happens. There's a shift, a progression of divine revelation. Look with me, with me at Isaiah chapter 53. Some of you know this passage. It's the prophecy of the suffering servant. And who do Christians interpret as the suffering servant? Jesus. That's right. It's Jesus. Grew up like a tender shoot, despised and rejected, crushed for our sin, led like a lamb to the slaughter, cut off from the land of the living, assigned a grave with the wicked. It's, it, it's Jesus. It's a prophecy of Jesus written, think of it, over 700 years before his birth. But specifically, what I want us to look at this morning is a, that passage in Isaiah 53 in verse 10. This is what it says. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer... And, through, and though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, catch this next part, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. Friends, this would have been interpreted, this passage, this prophecy would have been interpreted as radical language for people in Isaiah's day. Because of what it implies. That a Messiah who dies for the sin of humanity, who himself has no physical children, nonetheless receives offspring. A new people with many, many descendants. See, in the old covenant, your identity was formed by your name. Your ability to procreate. 
But in the new covenant, your identity is formed by your allegiance to a suffering servant who dies in your place and covers your sin. Do you see it? Isaiah has more. Check Isaiah chapter 54, verse 1 out. Sing, O barren woman, you who never bore a child. Burst into song. Shout for joy, you who were never in labor. Because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Radical language. A seismic paradigm shift. And look with me a few chapters after that in Isaiah chapter 56. This time the prophecy is for eunuchs, people who don't physically have the capacity to procreate. This is what God says. For this is what the Lord says. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name. Better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. Friends, these are remarkable texts that extend way beyond the norm. Isaiah is prophesying of a day when whether you're married or unmarried, whether you have children or whether you're barren, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, whether you're young or old, rich or poor, handicapped or fully capacitated, all will have the potential to possess the full rights and privileges of being God's sons and daughters. Amen? Isaiah is prophesying of a day when a covenant is passed, not through physical procreation, but through spiritual regeneration. A day when people aren't born physically into the kingdom of God, but rather born again by faith. Point of reference, think of a conversation 700 years later between Jesus and Nicodemus. Here, Isaiah is hinting at what from his perspective is still yet to come. And yet, Moncton Wesleyan, as Christians, we believe that that new day has come through Jesus Christ. And so we fast forward for a few minutes to, uh, to Matthew chapter 19, into the New Testament now. We jump ahead. Jesus and the disciples and the Pharisees, they're, they're wrestling over this awkward, long-standing topic of marriage and divorce. Well, what do you do with that, Jesus? And in the heat of the argument, in the heat of the conversation, in Matthew chapter 19, 10, the disciples, they turn to Jesus and they say quite, uh, quite blankly and, and frankly, they say this. This is tricky. If this is the situation, maybe it's better not to marry. <laughs> Check out what Jesus says there. In Matthew 19, verses 11 to 12, Jesus replied, Not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, 
and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. To the statement, catch this, maybe it's better not to marry, Jesus basically said, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> maybe. Lots, lots of people will marry. Don't get me wrong. And, and that's fine. That's fine. But there are some that won't marry for the sake of the kingdom of God. And that's fine too. That's fine too. Listen, Jesus isn't degrading marriage. He says it's good. It's very good, in fact. But he says singleness can work too. You with me? One more stop in Matthew chapter 22 before we pull back into the driveway of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Matthew 22. In Matthew 22, Jesus is facing those tricksters, the, the, the Sadducees. And they're trying to stump him on the issue of marriage and the resurrection. And Jesus throws this spicy little curveball at these spiritual and religious scribes. Jesus replies in 22, verse 29 and 30. You are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. Very bold. Verse 30. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. The picture that Jesus paints here is that when we get to heaven, marriage that's perceived earthly in this life will presumably somehow, who knows, likely entirely look different in the next. You with me? Everybody okay here this morning? And so having put some of this all together, what we begin to see is that there is a progression in Scripture in the development of a theology of singleness. And what it does is it, it helps us to see different things. It helps us to see perhaps a little bit more clearly, for example, what Paul is trying to communicate to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And basically, at bottom, it's this. In whatever situation you find yourself in currently, be content. Be content. Check out 1 Corinthians 7, verse 17. Accept whatever situation the Lord has put you in and continue on. Verse 20, you should continue on as you were when God called you. Verse 24, so dear brothers and sisters, whatever situation you were in when you became a believer, stay there in your new relationship with God. Verse 27, if you have a wife, don't end the marriage. If you do not have a wife, do not get married. Now let's be careful this morning. <laughs> Qualifier. When we read these passages in the context of other passages, I don't think, I'm convinced that Paul or Jesus is saying that a change in our familial status is inherently or deterministically evil or sinful. We okay with that? Now, 
The key idea, though, that I don't believe should be missed here this morning is the call to be content in the context that you find yourself in. Are you single this morning? Are you married this morning? Hear me. Both can be good. Both can be good. And both can point us toward the gospel. And so let me speak to those of us who are married just for a few moments. Last week, uh, Pastor Drew talked about mutual submission in marriage. Were you here? You remember? A submission that provokes holiness and unconditional love that ultimately points us not selfishly towards ourselves in marriage, but to God. What an amazing reminder. So very true. So very true. To build upon this, married friends, let me ask frankly this. What if we stopped bantering and joking with singles about when they were going to get married or settled down and instead entered into meaningful conversations with them about what God is doing in their lives today. How about this one? What if we asked ourselves whether we seek to affirm certain people because of their physical or relational characteristics instead of their faithfulness in following the Holy Spirit at whatever stage of life they may be in? One more. What if being spiritual fathers and mothers to others took up as much of our time and energy as investing in our biological relationships. To those of us who are married this morning, please hear me. Our value, our identity, is not determined by what we've accomplished or by who we're married to but by the price that was paid for us on a cross. Friends, we are brought into God's family as sons and daughters because Jesus paid a price for our sin with his atoning sacrifice. And for those of us who receive it, we are adopted and given a new name. We're his, and that's what matters That is our primary identity, not our marital status. And furthermore, I wonder if singleness, in a way that earthly marriage cannot, actually affirms to us that our Christian identity isn't in our earthly relational status, but in our identity with Christ. You see, the world... And Jerry Maguire would say that we need a husband and a wife to complete us. But what our godly single family members and friends can actually teach us is that that simply isn't true. It's hogwash. (laughs) 
The truth is, in Christ, regardless, regardless of our marital status, we can be fully complete. And so in singleness, or if you're married this morning, singleness can provide for us a picture that provides an idea of what true satisfaction and sustenance and sufficiency actually looks like. And so if you're married this morning, as Paul reminds us, continue on, invest in your marriage, keep it strong, pour into your spouse, guard your heart. Marriage is a beautiful thing that's meant to be cherished and protected, and God bless you. God bless you as you continue to invest in this and other relationships. So let me talk to those of you who are single for a few moments here this morning. And on behalf of our church this morning, I'm compelled to offer you some apologies. We apologize if we have ever given you an impression through our words that singleness somehow makes you less of a person. It does not. Forgive us for being indiscreet in flippant conversations regarding matchmaking that left you feeling uncomfortable, inadequate, or inferior. Forgive us for our tendency to carelessly lump all singles under the same umbrella without a consideration of the many ways that singleness manifests itself. Forgive us for being ignorant of the challenges that you experience to find a solid Christian partner if, in fact, you are seeking one. Forgive us for confusing the state of singleness with the notion of celibacy. Forgive us for our overgeneralizations and misrepresentations of you as shallow, pleasure-seeking, promiscuous, impulsive, and or materialistic. Forgive us for assuming that our family goals must be your family goals. Finally, forgive us. Forgive us for suggesting to you that singleness is a gift that you should accept and be content with without fully considering that maybe it's a gift you'd rather not receive. We humbly ask for your forgiveness, those of you who are single here this morning. And let me challenge you singles with this. If you are here this morning, consider ways in which you can maximize your singleness for the advancement of the kingdom of God. Use it as your leverage. Use it as leverage. Listen. Singleness isn't an excuse for you to overextend your adolescence into adulthood, okay? And it's not a badge 
of honor to be worn if, in fact, you are not honoring God in your singleness, right? But friends, if you allow it, it can point you and others toward the gospel. Amen? Amen. Singleness, whether for a period in in your life or for all of your earthly life, it should not be understood as falling short of God's best for you. And so hear me this morning, friends. You are a blessing. You are a blessing. And singleness has a purpose in God's great design. Two examples uh, to illustrate, and then we're done. Two ideas, two illustrations to uh, provide for us an image of what we're honing in on this morning. Moncton Wesleyan, uh, many of you would know Kurt. You know Kurt? Kurt is uh, just an awesome missionary friend of ours. And uh, he's from our church and he ministers to the Muslim world. And at present, Kurt ministers as a single man. And with his permission, here's what he shared with me this week. I suppose that it will inspire you as much as our acquaintance continues to inspire me. Here's what Kurt wrote. If singles can trust God with their desires and throw themselves into solely pursuing Christ, singleness can be a beautiful thing for God's glory. In my experience and observation, it seems as if the benefits and blessing of singleness are amplified with contentment in Christ and disappear with worry about the future. Many people see their singleness as a barrier between them and leaving for the mission field. They want to get married and feel if they go as a single, they may never have the chance. I don't think that's true. Singleness also forces you into greater connectedness with other believers for fellowship and accountability, which is a blessing, end quote. Isn't that good? Thanks, Kurt. You are a blessing, and and God is blessing you. As we close this morning, and thank you, you've been tremendously good listeners. I... um, I'd like to shine a a spotlight on a segment of the single population that often gets overlooked. These are people who are created in the image of God and have special needs. Many of these people, they remain single for their entire earthly life. And yet, as as many of you have discovered, we have much to learn from them. Amen? Incidentally, I am very excited this morning to, to announce that there's a team that has begun to meet here at Moncton Wesleyan to discuss initiatives at our church that'll strengthen our ministry to people with special needs. So stay tuned for more. In the meantime, yes, yeah. In the meantime, uh, watch this video and be inspired and, and dream along with me, won't you?
My favorite best of AJ that I sing and dance, I am good at it, and I'm the smart person. The best thing about being me is hanging out with really cool guys from my small group and the Penguin Project. I'm healthy. I always have a good idea up my sleeve. Uh, I always have a solution to a problem. I always have new ideas for stories. I always have something swimming around my head to entertain myself. I get to hug people. And who doesn't want hugs? My family is awesome. I like being me because um, I'm, I'm nice and kind, but I like helping, um, helping other friends and helping people. I like to run. My friends are here right now in my group. Uh, I love sharing my talents with others, and it's really fun just to express my feelings and express my moves and dances. Like, if someone doesn't like your shirt or the way you look, just say, okay, and then five people that like you for you. The hardest thing about being me expressing how I feel inside to other people. When I play self, self in my brain makes me feel nervous. I have a hard time doing math file calculator and I have a hard time reading. I'm doing toys and homework. Fifth grade, um, I tried looking for a place to sit and everybody's like, no, you can't sit here, go away. Just if someone's not being nice to you or something. Worrying and thinking I'm not good. I don't like changes and don't like going to funerals. Me haunted with my method. My mom, dad, and my mom passed away. That I don't understand what the teacher's saying. Understanding what people are talking and saying about to me. And how people understand me. And how people know me. I'm having trouble, like, getting into conversations, like, asking the right questions, answering them. Making friends. Making friends is very tough for me. When I think about what God thinks of me, I, th I thank Him. Because I've been through a lot. I had three open heart surgeries, and I'm here. Oh, I, I. God thinks I, I'm not abandoned. I'm not lonely. I'm also not depressed. A lovable, kind person. He loves me. I just can't think like he he's silly this time. He could be silly that around that time. He might get in trouble a little bit. I still love him anyway, sort of thing. A smile. He thinks I'm cool. God always comes first. Even before these insanely cute boys that I like. But God always comes first. <laughs> you know what? Uh, she is, she's absolutely right. Said better, perhaps, than anything communicated so far this morning. Regardless of your status on a tax form. God always comes first. Amen? Amen. Amen.